Welcome to The Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by the incredible Rad Roller Mobility Tools, my absolute favorite tools for self-myofascial release for at-home treatment for all aches, pains, and mobility issues. Check out the link in our show notes below and use the special offer code HEALING20 to get a special 20% discount on your first order. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement. I am your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and with us today, we have Brian Mahan. I'm so excited to chat with Brian today. We are going to take a deep dive into shame and trauma and all the all the feel-good subjects and really see how that lives in our body and what we can do to process and work with it. Um, Brian is not a traditional talk therapist. He is a somatic experiencing practitioner specializing in working with anxiety, PTSD, developmental trauma, shock trauma, and shame. He teaches mental health and healing professionals how to effectively work with healthy shame and toxic shame. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today, Brian. Uh, My pleasure. Brian, this is um, such... A, a deep niche that you found yourself in, and particularly the somatic experiencing aspect of it, which, you know, for anyone who's listening and doesn't know, um, somatic is just the word that means when dealing with the body. Um, you know, the body is soma, it is, it is that solid ground that we find ourselves in every day. Uh, how did you arrive at doing somatic experiencing as a practitioner and working with trauma and shame? Well, um, after 25 years of trying every pill, potion, and powder, and going to every healer in Kahuna and which doctor I could find um, in my own personal quest, you know, sitting at the foot of every guru and praying and meditating and medicating. And, you know, I felt like I was making some headway along the way. Um, and then I was in a catastrophic car wreck on December 21st, 2003. Um, and subsequently to that, sometime after, I'm not really sure exactly when, because that whole period of time is a bit of a blur still. Um, I started having panic attacks. And of course, I didn't know they were panic attacks. Um, I just found myself laying on the living room floor in the fetal position or flopping around like a fish on a hot rock um, Mm -hmm. for days on end, thinking I was either going crazy or had become possessed. And um, the craziness convinced me that I had become possessed. (laughs) So I actually sought out um, a referral for an exorcist. Thank God I didn't go to a priest. Um, and uh, I was sent to a somatic experiencing practitioner. And then um, after three sessions, my panic attack stopped. And uh, within two weeks, I was in a training. I was just like, I don't know what voodoo this is, but I need to <laughs> I need to figure out what it is. And of course, you know, for my whole life, anytime I found anything that was helpful for me, whether it was a book or a supplement um, or a practice, um, I was just that kind of guy that wanted to share it with everybody that I knew. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of one of my, um, you know, um, driving forces from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So I was just giving it away, giving it away, giving it away to as many people or anyone who was interested in exploring it. And um, I started creating video content and created the YouTube channel and all of that. So that's just been a driving force um, for the last 17 years. 
is to share my experience mm -hmm. and um, the work of somatic experiencing in and of itself. That's beautiful. So, yeah. so you know, I practiced for several years and then I began assisting two of the faculty members um, in the training program. Um, and then about five or six years ago, I stumbled onto this word shame, mm -hmm. uh, having really no idea what it really meant or was, um, and attended an online kind of um, seminar about it and became so fascinated about it. I started flying to Berkeley every month to take these trainings um, and uh, eventually became the first assistant for those teachers and then um, ultimately began to teach their work um, and now venturing out on my own to um, continue decimating or dis disseminating <laughs> not decimating disseminating Very the information yeah oh, that's amazing. i mean i love the process of going and it so happen often happens in the healing arts especially alternative you know you you never quite understand the practice as, as well as you experience it um and i think it's it's probably worth diving into a little bit about understanding what a panic attack is how it feels in the body to see that, you know, something when we think about panic and anxiety, I think traditionally we view it as um, a problem, so to speak, of the mind and right. really separate mind and body in a lot of our Western philosophies of healing. Um, how does a panic attack show up in the body? Why, why did it become appropriate? So many things are appropriate uh, for somatic right. experiencing. Right. Well, you know, first of all, we, we, you know, I think we have to kind of backtrack a little bit in that because I think you're spot on in regards to, you know, conventional Western allopathic perspective is anxiety and panic are mental disorders and what indeed they are, are physical, physiological conditions. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at trauma in and of itself, um, we have to recognize that we can become traumatized pre-verbal, pre-cognitive and pre-conceptual. So if we can become traumatized before we can think and reason, before we have those faculties available to us, then obviously it's not a higher brain cognitive experience. It's a mm -hmm. physiological experience. And so the dysregulation actually occurs in the lower brain, which governs the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. so the lower brain is our early detection warning system. It's you know, what I call our guardian angel, right? Its job is to keep us safe. And it is the primal brain, the, the reptilian brain. Um, and, you know, we, we think of it in very simple, I think of everything in very simplistic terms. Um, I try to take neurobiology and neuroscience and, and make it easily digestible. Um, and so if we think about the main structure of the lower brain, we call it the, generally it's known as the three Fs. I call it the five or six Fs. Um, so we have freeze, mm -hmm. flight, fight. Um, then there's one that is talked about more so now than before, and that's feign, right? Which when we feign death, like possums and impalas, and our system just goes into complete collapse mm -hmm. um, as a survival mechanism, uh, because the predator needs the prey energy in order to engage the predator energy. And so feigning and collapsing is a way to mm -hmm. um, you know, protect oneself. And then we have fornicate and feed. Mm, I like so this. These are, <laughs> so these are all of our survival mechanisms. And mm -hmm. it also can explain why there's a lot of dysregulation mm -hmm. around 
sex, sexuality, human engagement, social mm -hmm. engagement, and then also around food yeah. and what we consume. So we can take that even further into the consumption of where there can be dysregulation around food and drugs and alcohol and, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds all, of things as well. All of these, the ways that we are seeking to create a more pleasing and safe feeling experience coming from that midbrain, coming from that area of protection within our body. Um, but as we see so often, as these become dysregulated or they saved us once and now this no longer serves us, but the, the behavior is perpetuated. Now we have a physiology um, and we call it an issue, but we have a, a mismatch of our needs and the physiology and our responses that come up to exactly. stressful, traumatic experiences. Exactly. And so that lower brain governs the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is, you know, kind of our regulator. Mm -hmm. So we have the sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of like the charge in our system. And then the parasympathetic system, which helps to settle things. Again, both, very simplistic. Yeah. And both of those are under the umbrella term of autonomic, just like exactly. autopilot. Yeah. They just happen. We are not cognitively controlling those, thinking controlling those. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's where um, sensation is expressed as well. Right. And so when our lower brain is trying to get our attention, hey, something's awry here, it's going to get our attention, hopefully, by mm -hmm. the physiological expression of sensation in the body. And that's really where traumatic experiencing comes from is um, the awareness of body sensation and how to work with body sensation. Um, to uh, allow the nervous system to kind of go back into a, a state of arousal. Mm -hmm. And then we work with it in a very specific way to embrace what's there, to get curious about what's there, because mm -hmm. the higher brain doesn't want us to feel. The higher brain thinks if I feel something, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And then it'll do anything it can to try to get us out of the feeling of it. And so this is a different kind of approach where we're actually working with the sensation, mm -hmm. leaning into it, getting curious about it, allowing it to be there. And so that, that activation in the system, when given the attention that it deserves, when we're listening by feeling it, it mm -hmm. can then do what it knows it needs to do. And that is unwind and discharge and reorganize so mm -hmm. the system can return to resilience. I love that. And when you're talking about sensations, I think the, the piece to really draw out here is, you know, we're talking about those things that have by the cognitive brain really been labeled as uh, troublesome or, you know, scary or things that we don't need. These are the things that then, you know, going back to your experience can in great accumulation and loud noise amount to a panic attack because it's right. the sensation of sweating, of heart racing, of you know, other Trem trembling and shaking and flopping around like a fish on a hot rock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and instead of thinking of these things and, and we're really kind of talking in a sense about, you know, the allopathic uh, pathogenic approach, what is something that is wrong and uncomfortable that I need to remove or maybe suppress the, the symptom by taking, oh, if my heart rate goes up or blood pressure medication or something like that. That's very pathogenic to look at these symptoms individually and say they are problems and we need to somehow eliminate them versus, you know, what was called salutogenesis, where we talk about an origin of health 
and we look at these things as uh, signals, as part of the greater whole. And what can they teach us? What, what can we do to help support our body to start having these sensations in a more palatable and helpful way instead of this overcharge? All the alarms in your house are going off. We're talking smoke detector, CO2, the timer on your microwave, um, your alarm clock, everything all at once. And there's too much noise to know which one to attend to first. Right. Mm -hmm. What we have to understand is that it's communication, mm -hmm. right? It's our body communicating with us. And the most important part of any communication process is listening. Mm -hmm. And so if we can learn how to listen to it, how to embrace it by feeling it, then we're supporting the system rather than compartmentalizing or distracting, disconnecting, dissociating, et cetera. And so with panic, you know, let's say, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there's a relationship between anxiety and panic. You know, anxiety is, an, is um, you know, let's say it starts off with a sensation or it starts off with, a, you know, a small cluster of sensations that might feel like nervousness or just hypervigilance. And then the higher brain feels that and goes, uh oh, what's going on? Something's going on. You're feeling something, right? And it starts ramping up. So I always say panic attacks are you're freaking out and then you're freaking out that you're freaking out and then you're freaking out that you're freaking out that you're freaking out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so it's just this massive escalation. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a, an anxiety disorder that's based just on bodily sensation. Mm -hmm. So if somebody feels anything, their higher brain just goes into a massive alert response to, uh oh, I'm feeling something, something's wrong. How do I change it? How do I get out of it? How do I disconnect from it? And that's something that we've talked about on previous um, podcasts before is really that, you know, we all have anxiety in and of itself, stress in and of itself. It's neither good Thank nor God. bad. <laughs> Thank God. It's communication. It's, it's, yeah. it's saying, pay attention. Something, something's going on here. Yeah. It's like, it is a signal. And so when we come to anxiety disorders, even depressive disorders, because again, that goes more into the, you know, the freeze or the faint or the, de the depressed side of those responses, um, the numbing side, it is about how we are communicating with that signal. And so the anxiety disorder is anxiety about anxiety. And mm -hmm. it's kind of an odd loop to get caught in or even to really conceptualize when you are in the midst of it. And like you said, the anxiety and the panic is so loud that you felt like you needed an exorcist. I mean, it's, it is there to tell you everything, mm -hmm. but really it's, it's this feedback that, that goes haywire. So yeah. where do you even begin to untangle such loud communication and start to understand it? Right. Well, you know, there's kind of a, you know, in essence, a, Again, I'm just such a simpleton, a two-prong approach to this, okay? So one is um, dealing with the symptoms, the sensations, right? Um, because a lot, you know, sometimes when people come to me, that's all they're looking for. I want a reduction in symptoms. I want a reduction in this anxiety. I want a reduction in these experiences of panic. Um, but what we also really have to understand is that we have to get underneath all of that to figure out, well, why is it here, right? And one of the reasons why anxiety and, and panic present is because there's been perhaps many years of disconnection, dissociation, suppression, and compartmentalization. And around all of that, we form these defenses and coping mechanisms and survival strategies and ways of self-soothing and self-regulating. 
And although those are very helpful tools, they at best are a temporary respite. Mm -hmm. And so we're still not working on the underlying issue. And so we have a tendency to move, you know, for our lives to kind of have these reenactments and patterns and habituations that are based in old unresolved wounds. Mm -hmm. And so once we can get into that old wound and get that discordance or that holding pattern or, you know, the incomplete defense response or whatever that is, once we can get into that old wound and, and, and help to facilitate the body to unwind and discharge and reorganize and return to resilience, we've worked with um, the, the root cause and then a lot of the symptoms, you know, of the anxiety and the panic fall away. So we need to kind of, you know, figure out ways initially how to help manage and mitigate the symptoms so that we can, you know, so that the client can have a sense of, you know, settling to some degree. And then we can also go in and excavate for those old wounds, right? But even in the exploration of the old wounds, we have to be mindful and careful not to go to T0 too soon. Yeah. And so we want to work on the periphery of things mm -hmm. so that we can build that foundation, that resilience in the system, a greater sense of safety and containment. So the more resourced a client is, actually, the better they feel, mm -hmm. the deeper we can go and the you know um, safer it is to kind of dive into those, you know, those old wounds. Because like any kind of therapy, we definitely have the opportunity to create re-traumatization or re-victimization if the person going into the work, like you said, I just, I love the word resourced, isn't resourced to handle it, to look at these um, symptoms and sensations with a different lens mm -hmm. and start to feel new opportunities on the way through it. So, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the traditional talk therapy and sort of slowly winding back the story in that way when it comes to then the physical embodiment. Because as you started off explaining, we can, we can develop these traumatic reactions before we have cognitive reels, before we can think and even know what's going on. How, how do we peel that onion? Well, that's a great question because... Um, Research, recent research has shown, and this is a little controversial, and I don't mean to upset any of my, my peers and colleagues, but there's research that's showing that traditional psychiatry and psychology, a psychological approach to working with trauma is not only unhelpful, but can be contraindicated. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is, is that Psychiatry, oftentimes, the medication is suppressing mm -hmm. the thoughts and feelings. So then we don't have access to the things that we actually need to access in order to be able to do the real work of healing. And then traditional talk therapy. And of course, there are many different styles and there's enormous purpose and function in, in traditional psychology and talk therapy you know, that serves in many, many different ways. And working with trauma specifically, because we're looking at it as predominantly a physiological wound, it needs mm -hmm. to be worked with physiologically. If we try to approach it psychologically in the normal, um, you know, kind of paradigm of narrative catharsis, then what we actually may be doing is re-traumatizing. Because when we're in the narrative and we're just telling our story and we are moving towards that cathartic experience, 
we're actually reinforcing the neurological pathway mm -hmm. of that wound because the lower brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality, right? The 24-7, the lower brain is just a collector of information, right? It's our early detection warning system. So it's collecting information from our memories, from what we're currently thinking about, which is oftentimes problems and problem solving. Mm -hmm. And then what we're imagining about the future, which oftentimes is problem seeking and or catastrophization, right? So the lower brain's taking all this information as if it's real and it's happening now. Mm -hmm. And the only way that it can kind of counter or get any kind of perspective around that, because the lower brain doesn't have the ability to perceive, it can't think, right? So it's collecting that information, but it's also collecting information through our five senses. Mm -hmm. Right. So as we are fully, if, if we're able to fully orient to our external environment through all five senses and fully orient to our internal environment through all five senses, then that gives the lower brain all the information it needs to know where we are in time and space and whether or not we're safe. So when we're in the narrative, we're telling our, we're in the memory, we're telling our story, the lower brain is perceiving it as if it's happening again. And then all those defense responses and coping strategies and survival mechanisms and ways of self-soothing and self-regulating, all that starts to come online as well, because it's like, oh God, here we go again, right? Yeah. yeah. And so even when I work with narrative or work with someone's memory, um, like I said, I work on the periphery first before going to T0, but I also take things out of order and little bits and pieces at a time. All we're ultimately, well, all I ultimately use the narrative for is to activate the charge in the nervous system. Once I recognize or the client recognizes that there's some arousal, we drop the story and we redirect the attention awareness into what they're actually feeling. How and where are you feeling what, right? And we slow that process down and get curious about it and willing and invite it to be there because we're just working with a little bit of arousal, mm -hmm. right? If we let the system go into the full arousal, into catharsis, then it's just, you know, um, yeah. it's triage at that point, right? Yeah. It's like, what, you know? Well, I, and think, so, I, I think the, the average listener can sort of, um, take a personal experience of that. Cause when you talk about, um, you know, how the, the lower brain doesn't know what is that problem seeking that future casting or the remembering, um, I think that a really common piece of advice is a little bit like this, that when you're getting into that anxious spin on the, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs to come back to your breath. And that coming back to your breath is exactly coming into that physiological experience of present and what is happening in your body and giving that lower brain another piece of information, another clue to the puzzle to say, if I am breathing and sitting calmly on this comfortable chair, then clearly I am not being consumed in a house fire that I didn't know was happening, that maybe Forever. that's the story I've made up for myself. And so it's orienting to the what is true, what is happening now within our physical bodies versus these stories that we can capture, create, um, expand upon, or, or not let go of. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of a cautionary tale in there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I mean, you know, breath mm -hmm. is life. And, right. you know, the problem is that the problem exists when we stop breathing, mm -hmm. right? So as long as we're breathing, you know, we're, we're, we're still okay on some yeah. level, right? But when we're, you know, perhaps in the anxiety or the panic and we try to return to the breath and the breath is gulping or the mm -hmm. breath is short and shallow or the breath is holding, um, then it may not necessarily be the perfect resource in that moment for that person, 
right? Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, I see a lot um, of, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, there's a, there's a resourcing um, skill of grounding, right? Everybody, you know, it's kind of part of the vernacular now on the therapeutic realm. Let's just take a moment and feel your feet on the ground. Well, if you direct a client to feel their feet on the ground and their defense response is to dissociate, that's not going to be a resource for them, mm -hmm. right? And so we have to be a little mindful, too, of being able to, to recognize, hold space, and explore what those resources are for a client before we begin the process. Mm. So because for some people, an internal resource is not the place to go if their body is a shop of horrors, right? And so maybe what we need to do is to help them find an external resource. So mm -hmm. is there anything in the room that gives you a sense of well-being and safety? Is there an object that gives that you know that brings forward a pleasant memory, right? And so we have to really make sure that we're working with the client and where their best resources are found. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, um, I live in Los Angeles, and you know, there's a big yoga community and there's a big spiritual community, and everything's about the breath and the breath and the breath. Um, and just as a trauma specialist, I have a little bit of hesitation of trying to make that a universal mm -hmm. um, tool that fits all occasions for all people. Right. I love you drawing attention to that and, and to take um, my example and really create the cautionary tale out of it because I do, I really agree with you that very often, um, and again, this is coming from the foundation of how we see medicine and wellness within a Western culture is that we are looking for the silver bullet. We're looking for the one size fits all and the 95% efficacy and works for everyone because that's really easy to have a protocol. Protocols are nice and neat, but they treat pathologies, not persons. And persons are going to have very different experiences. And all of us, you know, engaging with any type of work, whether it is breath work, grounding work, a pharmaceutical intervention, um, looking for a pleasant object in your home. If your home is not a safe place, there's not going to be many pleasant objects there for you. Right. But so you can take that to the, the place on the planet that you yeah. love the most or, you know, that, exactly. that hike that you go on or whatever. Yeah. But the, the point being that whatever it is, there is going to be something, but what right. it is is going to be just incredibly unique and precious to you and your story and your healing. There's Everyone not is a fingerprint. Yes, yes. Everyone is a fingerprint. And so therefore we have to work with the fingerprint. Mm -hmm. Love it. So where do we then take this experiencing of trauma in the body? And how does that trauma engage with conversations like shame? Well, well <laughs> shame is trauma. Shame is the underpinning of developmental trauma. Shame is a ubiquitous experience because it's used in every culture throughout the world since the beginning of time to socialize children, to form and maintain and protect tribe to establish power and maintain hierarchy. So it is part of the human condition and part of the human experience. Um, I want to separate out healthy shame from toxic shame. We want healthy shame. <laughs> if we didn't have healthy shame, we'd all be sociopaths and there'd be no rule of law. 
right? What we're concerned about is the toxic shame of the identification with the beliefs that we form early on about ourselves, about the world, about other people, and how we come to believe other people see us and experience us. Right. And so when we're in the identification of I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm unfixable, I'm I have no value, um, therefore I'm un, I'm unlikable, I'm unlovable, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm different. Right. So shame exists anywhere there's a sense of difference. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we think of shame having being that you have the feeling of being one down, right? Not a, not equal to. We can also have shame being one up right so wherever there's difference so for instance you know i grew up in an affluent household with a fantastic education and when i went out to play i dumbed myself down because Mm -hmm. i wanted to fit in and belong with the other kids who didn't have that kind of education or didn't have that kind of vocabulary or didn't have the elocution you know whatever that was and so you know shame is all about belonging right we're hardwired from you know from the from you know from birth we are hardwired with a longing for belonging yeah because our lives depend on it we're the only animal on the planet that spends at least 25 percent of its life 100 percent dependent upon others for its survival mm-hmm. millennials sometimes 30 or 40 percent of the <laughs> but you know so there's this (laughs) there's an instinctual drive to socially engage Mm -hmm. right and that's why we're tribal creatures because we are dependent upon one another and so shame is the terror of the breaking of the interpersonal bridge Mm -hmm. because if we fall out of favor we risk death Mm -hmm. because if we're shunned or abandoned or or neglected or cast out we don't have the resources skills and agency to fend for ourselves Mm -hmm. and so by whatever means necessary we have to maintain these relational connections and so shame is a physiological instinctual response to a nearly impossible situation and the physiology of it Right. This goes on pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, pre-conceptual as well. It's physiological. It's animal instinctual drive. So when we're feeling that threat, you know, of the breaking of the interpersonal bridge or the threat of rejection, the first thing that happens is we break social engagement. So we look down and away. Our brains get scrambled, so we can't think clearly anymore. If we're at that stage in our lives when we can't think, <laughs> um, the larynx constricts to stop us from saying whatever we were saying. And our bodies, you know, the chest collapses, the shoulders roll forward, sometimes the foot turns in, sometimes both feet turn in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the body goes into a state of freeze, either through bracing or through collapse. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about that physiology repeated over time, the neural pathway that can be created and habituated when we're in a constant state of this assessment of do I fit in, do I belong, am I different, you can see how that could have enormous impacts on our personality, Mm -hmm. on how we behave in the world, and how we imagine the world and experiences us and interprets us. 
Yeah, what you've described is a really stereotypical posturing of that downtrodden, that bullied kid, um, the outsider. And exactly. And our body will will take the reinforcement of how do you need to show up in the world? And is it going to be through that collapsing in or that rigid freeze back that you're talking about that now we've got the broad shoulder, the broad test, and that person that's punching their way through the world? Right. All of these pieces are that adaptation of how do I fit? Oh, I'm not fitting well. Right. And we have four main reactions mm-hmm. when we're in that shame experience, regardless of when we're collapsed or we're in that... Mm-hmm you know, um, rigid braced place, mm-hmm. um, attack self, that rigid braced place, mm-hmm. attack self, it must be me, there's something wrong, mm-hmm. denial, oh, they didn't really mean it, or, um, you know, it must be, it must have been me, mm-hmm. you know, that's, there's not, you know, there can't be something wrong with our parents, or our mm-hmm. teachers, or our clergy, because our lives depend on them, so we have a tendency to deify them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and assume there must be something wrong with me. If they're treating me this way, there must be something wrong with me. So we have attack self, attack other, deny and withdraw. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, we can kind of track um, how someone engages uh, in the world based on, you know, where their kind of shame responses are. Mm-hmm. And all of those you know, as it shows up in the body and is postured in the body, then we can link this back to the conversation about trauma and that we are looking for felt sensations. And that those are our warnings. Those are our conversations with our lower brain that is seeking to keep us straight or keep us safe. And is that lower brain going to be sending those signals through the withdrawal and attack with the withdrawal signals, the attack inward? How do we keep playing this out then on a physiological level? Because that's the conversation of the body. That's how we talk with self. Right, right. And so, you know, first and foremost, recognizing that this is a a somatic reaction. Mm -hmm. We need to work with it somatically. And just as we work with all trauma, um, when we can, you know, when someone is in a shame response, you know, which can happen you know, I've, I'll have a, you know, a new client sometimes and, and I'll ask them at some point, you know, maybe even in the first session, you know, if you were to drop out of your head for a moment and just land in your body and scan from the your soles of your feet to the roots of your hair to your fingertips, what are some of the things you begin to notice? That can send somebody into a shame spiral because they have the inner dialogue of what if I don't do this right? What if I don't give him the answers he's looking for, right? And so those old... Sh- shame beliefs can then immobilize them and, and send them into a shame spiral and 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 to collapse right so um we have to tease it apart slowly we have to be able to kind of um you know in part it's really helpful to share the psych ed with the psychological education and the physiological education of what shame is and how it works and why it's important and 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 how it can um also um, you know, uh, adversely and negatively affect us. So once we get the higher brain on board, then the feeling into what their shame posturing and experiences becomes a bit more tolerable. And then if we can focus on not the most intense part of what they're feeling, but instead the periphery of what they're feeling, then we can begin to melt that shame freeze slowly over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also some really, uh, you know, amazing techniques and 
ways of being able to kind of give the shame back um, <laughs> to our um, shamers in chief. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> and so it is completing, uh, in a lot of ways, it's completing this cycle within our body. You know, it is well, a response that is meant to save us one way or another, um, or that we were unable to complete in an attempt to save ourselves, um, and and completing that conversation so that we can move forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, a lot of people think of the opposite of shame as pride, mm -hmm. right? I think of the opposite of shame as vibrancy and curiosity, mm -hmm. right? Because shame shuts us down, collapses us. And when we come out of that, we, 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 our vibrancy returns, our vitality returns, and our curiosity and willingness to engage in the world mm -hmm. returns. That we can, again, now trust this community that we are so physiologically desperate to be a part of. You know, and exactly in that shame cycle, there's a lot of I've trespassed. What if I do it again? I better not do mm -hmm. it again. And that is that lack of curiosity and that lack of uh, I always see it as expansion, just right. that ability to breathe into a space. And, um, you know, instead of trusting that you have a place of belonging. Right. And part of what happens in the shaming experience is that we begin to take all of these outside messages mm -hmm. and self-police, right? So we create within us, you know, we're multifaceted animals, right? Mm -hmm. Multifaceted personalities. And so, you know, we have all these different parts to us. So we create this part, you know, that becomes our inner critic, our self-police, mm -hmm. because what we're trying to do is protect ourselves. Oh, I've learned that if I say that, I get in trouble. So I better not say that again. Mm -hmm. I've learned if I do that, someone, you know, slaps me across the face. I better not do that again, mm -hmm. right? Or if I don't say this, or if I don't do that. And so we're getting all these messages from the outside world. It's not just our primary caretakers. Yeah. It's the teachers and clergy and coaches and kids on the playground, and you know, and all of that. We're getting all these messages from the outside world of what's wrong with us, mm -hmm. right? And so in a sense, we're lo we lose our authenticity through the shaming process because we're being told that part of you shouldn't be here. That part of you doesn't, you know, isn't allowed. That part of you is bad. That part of you is wrong. And so we start dismembering parts mm -hmm. of us, right? And trying to suppress and hide, you know, um, parts of us. And so in healing shame, what we're actually doing is we're expanding the container large enough to remember all of our dismembered parts mm -hmm. so that we can move out of the toxic shame of I'm bad and there's something wrong with me into the discernment that we have within healthy shame of this, you know, I, I live in a polarized universe. So of course, there's going to be polarity within me, right? Mm -hmm. And there's going to be parts of me that that tribe over there won't embrace but guess what that tribe over there will yeah right and so we learn through discernment over time oh when i'm in this group i bring forward these parts and i hold these parts back and when i'm with that group i bring forward those parts and i hold these parts back right so we get to be authentic um it's not a matter of being duplicitous right um but 
we have the agency and capacity to be all of who we are, mm-hmm. knowing how, when, where, if, and why we what we present and can hold space for. And then hopefully, of course, within you know the trajectory of our lives, we amass our family, right? Those people who will hold and embrace all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they may not love every part of us, right? You know, yeah. unconditional love is based on the the idea that there are conditions mm-hmm. that one loves in spite of, right? Yep. I love you in spite of these conditions. Mm-hmm. So when we have that unconditional love amongst our family, we know that we can be fully, pre- you know, fully present all parts of us, mm-hmm. and that will still be embraced. I love that. And I like that bringing up that aspect of it's not about being duplicitous. It's really situating yourself in a world that has gotten quite large and quite loud. I mean, we have not only are we not in these individual tribes of people, nomadic or what for, that is contained unless someone comes wandering and exploring. You know, we are intermarrying among all of these groups of people that were once so very, very different and in many ways still are. We have the internet and social media that is connecting us globally across, you know, cultures and time zones in the whole world instantly. And not all of us are going to follow the same values as everyone who is reading your your um, your comment thread or even the families that have amassed on the playground and the children there. So when we're talking about this kind of trauma and shame cycle, it's not the big extremes, uh, though it certainly exists in abusive relationships and and families and these really um, traumatic, big T trauma experiences that we talk about. But it Mm -hmm. is just like your example on the playground of coming from an affluent and well-educated family and finding a group of people where that was not a desirable trait. Or same thing for me growing up was still, and probably might still be, but in an era of, you know, smart girls are too chatty. So you better dumb that down because no one's going to want to hang out with you. (laughs) You're focusing on the wrong skill set. That that was the shame that I got from my community. These are minor Mm. little T traumas. You know, and and with your car accident, you went through a big T trauma. Um, I have my own health history with big T traumas. But all of this, our body, in a sense, is going to talk about the same way and express Mm -hmm. in that same physiological experience. Yeah, and that's what I love about (laughs) the, the, the somatic approach and the physiology is the simplicity of it. Mm hmm. Right. Um, is to really kind of understand that, yes, we are ridiculously complex creatures. Um, the biology and physiology alone is, you know, I mean, science still doesn't fully understand everything that's going on. We're, you know, I mean, it wasn't, in, you know, was it 30 years ago that the, that the, that the conventional wisdom was that the brain didn't change. And now we understand there's neuroplasticity. It was only five years ago in my education that we said that neuroplasticity lasts, you know, into our, our waning years. Yeah. Yeah. And it took, it took 20, 25 years for the Mm -hmm. concept of neuroplasticity to even be embraced within the scientific community. Right. But now we know, you know, um, amazing researchers out there that, that are doing brain mapping and all of that kind of thing. And this is another piece that's really fascinating about working with trauma 
is that if we look at these little T traumas, um, you know, which I call death by a thousand paper cuts, <laughs> you know, can can create these neurological pathways, right? And then we have the big T traumas that create neurological pathways, right? Um, we have we have, you know it's it's twofold of what we need to look at. One is we have the um, you know let's say we've got a a four lane freeway right that was once you know a open freeway, and then we have the death by a thousand paper cuts. We have a multiple car pileup, right? So one little thing upon the other, upon the other, upon the other, and now there's no getting through that neural pathway because there's this discordance and. And within all of those wounding experiences, the beliefs that we form about ourselves in the world and the way that the world sees us, all of our coping mechanisms, the survival strategies, the defense mechanisms and ways of self-soothing and self-regulating, all of that gets masked and, and, and tangled, right? So now we've got this festering wound that is um, self-perpetuating in a sense, because the beliefs that we form around that. Um, on the one hand, are there to protect us, right? So if this ever happens again, I know what to do, right? But those beliefs are also like scanning the horizon 24-7 to see, is it going to happen again? Is it going to happen again? Is it going to happen again? Well, neuro, you know, quantum physics and mechanics teaches us that we have a tendency to find what we look for. And so in the seeking, searching for it to avoid it, we're actually finding it. And so in a sense, bringing it towards us or us towards it. But there's opportunity there because when we're in the reenactment of that old wound, right, we have the opportunity in the reenactment to help to, 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 to utilize that as a way to track and trace back to the original wound and gain access to it so that we begin untangling that, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have the ability to do the reparative and corrective experiences in the present day. And so that's where neuroplasticity comes in again, where we can, let's say we have a, you know, a a cyclical negative thought, right? Uh, an intrusive thought. And we understand that there are, you know, like two kinds of thoughts. The ones that just kind of come out of nowhere and science isn't really sure where they come from. You know, collective conscious, collective unconscious, Godhead, seat of the soul. You know, we don't know where, we don't know where these intrusive thoughts come from. But we also have the ability to think, right? And so this negative thought comes in this old pattern, this old habituated, negative cyclical thinking, whatever that is. And with it, what, you know, the, the thought, we feel everything we think about, we think about everything we feel. So when the thought comes in, the feelings come with it, right? And now we're in that, that loop, that old neurological mm -hmm. loop. Now we have the ability also to think about that and go, oh, here's that negative thought. Here are those feelings again, right? I'm curious, let me lean into that. Let me feel into that, right? And yeah. as we lean in and feel into it, we can get really aware from the place of observation of how uncomfortable that is and how much we don't like it. And we can also recognize that our past is the biggest influence of our future. Mm -hmm. And we do have the ability to draw the line in the sand and go, wait a second, I do not want this to continue to influence my future, right? So I have choice now. One is I can go in and work on that original wound, best done with a trained professional. Mm -hmm. But what I can do mm -hmm. on my own is start to forge a new neural pathway. By drawing that line in the sand, just dragging my finger across the sand, right? I'm saying, I am not going to, I'm going to do whatever I can do to create a new neural pathway 
and work on that old wound. And so in that new neural pathway, we can, we can feel into that discomfort of it and go, no, this is not what I want. It's not what I want. Instead, what do I want? We can start to image a future that is in opposition to whatever those beliefs are and those experiences are, right? So, you know, you, you could, you know, I want to be in the, the, you know, let's say that this old neurological pathway is the self-loathing of body image, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to carry that into the future because that also creates and manifests the body that mm -hmm. I'm loathing. Yes. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and so I can, I can image the future of being in the healthiest, most vibrant, um, you know, that I, that I've ever been in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can imagine what it would be like to paddleboard and surf and, and hike and bike and, you know, do, uh, you know, yoga. And I, and I can imagine eating really, really healthy foods. And now I'm getting into a different state, right? Because I feel everything I think about. So as I'm imagining this new future and I'm excited and I'm curious and I'm hopeful everything starts to shift, right? And what's happening is, is there's a lot of dopamine, right? And dopamine is the jet fuel for neuroplasticity. And so what we can do on to even further engage that new neural pathway, drag our finger across that same line, right? We, we want to keep doing that until we've got a grand canyon of a new neural pathway, mm -hmm. right? And so we can take an action, a small, tiny, easily executed action that will move me in the direction of being the most healthy and vital I've ever been in my life, which may be as simple as I'm going to go grab my tennis shoes and put them by the front door. Right? So mm -hmm. now I've taken it out of thought and feeling and the image and I put it into action and to give it a little bit more dopamine after I move my tennis shoes by the front door, I celebrate it. I reward myself. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can be through postural kinds of things like the, you know, the universal sign of victory, the universal sign of, you know, Superman, Wonder Woman, you know, with your fists on your hips and your feet mm -hmm. spread apart. Um, it can be a happy dance, a pat on the back, you know, whatever we can do to create a little dopamine rush and reward ourselves for having taken that little action. Right. And, and once brain, I put the. I was going to say, because our brain and our, our nervous system. I think this is another myth that we come up against is that we think it has to be the big fix, the big ta-da and the big finish, the standing on top of the podium with the first place, the second place isn't good enough. And now we're talking about shame again, but our brain, our nervous system responds to the little things, responds exactly. to tiny movements, and most importantly, the recognition of it, the mindful attention to them. That's why social media is addictive. Mm -hmm. dopamine hit dopamine hit dopamine hit dopamine hit somebody liked it i got another like i got another like i got another like i got another like you know and mm -hmm. it, and it can be something as simple as, as seeing a thumbs up symbol and so if something as little as a thumbs up symbol a blue a blue thumbs up symbol can program your dopamine and over time and lots of studies to support this a lot of personal lived experience to support this um, that little blue thumbs up sign over time can create a habituation that every time you pick up your phone, you're going straight to your social media, then why not put that same level of pressure expectation on your shoes by the door and the pat on the back? 
We can right, absolutely. our attention to that new story. And the reality is that um, every single little thing that we do is etching that neural pathway deeper and deeper and deeper, right? Mm -hmm. And the celebration of all of that is also creating greater discipline and drive and determination. And so it becomes easier and easier and easier over time as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And the brain mapping studies have shown that it takes about 400 repetitions to create a new neural pathway. Unless done in play and curiosity, we can get it down to about 40. Mm. Why? Because of the dopamine. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, we have thousands of these thoughts coming through our head a day bringing up these old feelings. And so what do we have? Thousands of opportunities a day to catch it, gain some optimal distance from it, drag your finger through that line in the sand until you keep going and going and going and going, right? So we have a tendency to think that when these thoughts come through that it's bad, right? Oh, I'm so tired of these negative cyclical thinking, you know, thoughts and everything. But no, actually, there are opportunities because it's your system going, hey, pay attention. Yeah. Let's look at this. Let's work with this, right? But yeah. most people just identify with it, jump on that runaway freight train, and it's like a snowball heading down into the rabbit hole, ga gaining all of the confirmation bias and all the memories and all the experiences and all the thoughts. You know, here it is again, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you know, we wake up 10 years later and we're in the same pattern and it's even worse than it was before. So every single day we're given thousands of opportunities to seize and create new neural pathways. And we're given thousands of opportunities to seize, to track back into those original wounds so that we can actually clear that wreckage out of the freeway and open that pathway again. I can't think of anything more optimistic and a better reason to um, kind of greet each day with a view of opportunity and a view of what what are these discomforts, what are these you know mosquitoes in my house going to teach me instead of driving me crazy. Um, exactly. This is really where do you draw that line in the sand and which narrow pathway. Um, I love it. it's it's the old um, the old adage that within each heart there lives two wolves. Um, you know, the one, the one that attacks and feeds on fear and the one mm. that lives through love and which one is going to win is the one that you're going to feed. Mm. And so what are we going to feed? Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your um, clear and concise way of breaking down a very pun intended heady, but yet physical, um, <laughs> concept as, um, somatic and neuro somatic embodiment and neuroplasticity, um, how can our listeners learn more from you, learn more about somatic um, um, embodiment? I know you've got a book on the way. Uh, tell us a little uh, bit more about where to find you. Um, well, uh, you know, I'm easily Googleable, Googleable <laughs> um, but my website is briandmahan.com, um, B-R-I-A-N-D as in Douglas, M-A-H-A-N. Um, all of my social media is at Brian D. Mahan, S-E-P, Somatic Experiencing Practitioner. Um, and then the book, um, I'm at the finish line, which feels a hundred yards away, <laughs> but, uh, hopefully, you know, my, my, everything in me is saying it's coming out in November. Um, <laughs> I hope I have everything in me to 
effectuate that. Um, but uh, it's called I Cried All the Way to Happy Hour, a <laughs> Trauma Survivor's Guide to Profound and Long-Lasting Healing. And the main concept of it is to change the focus of, tra- of how the layperson understands trauma to, to, you know, because when we can refocus the lens and recognize that the root cause of trauma occurs in the body, not in the mind. Mm-hmm. And so when we can switch gears and work with the physiology as opposed to trying to handle and manage things just through mental gymnastics and trying to change the way we think about things, um, then there really is the possibility of profound and long-lasting healing. Beautiful. Oh, man. Well, I'm I'm like 5,000 words into a manuscript. So your November deadline sounds just delightful to me. I wish you all the best, all the best of luck in, in reaching and crossing it with the dopamine hit of arms up high. Um, oh, that's going to be some serious dopamine. <laughs> and uh, every little step along the way too. Um, so let's look for, I cried all the way to happy hour, a trauma survivor's guide to profound and long lasting healing this November. Um, we have all of Brian Mahan's links in our show notes. Um, if you want to look him up there, uh, and thank you again for joining us today. Uh, thank you. It's such a pleasure. And thank you everyone for tuning in and joining the movement as we look for new ways to heal ourselves and embrace the ground we walk on. So we'll see you next time for another episode of the healing ground movement podcast. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.